welcome to Paint Ed. PCA provides painting contractors with connections they need to grow their business. To find out more and to become a member, go to PCAPaintEd.org. Find more great content like this on PCA Overdrive. A subscription to the platform is included with membership. For all you non-members out there, sign up for our free trial. PCA Overdrive is available on the Apple Store and Google Play. In today's podcast, we feature audio from our Expo 2020 panel series. In this episode, we dive into modern apprenticeship with Nick Slavic and talk about the best strategies for finding good people to work for your company. Uh, like everything on social media, uh, most, of, most of the familiar faces I see here are from social media. And we all know that everything you see on social media is fake. So in that, um, in that light, what we're going to do is make an ultra-fake, excited picture just for social media. So I'm going to turn around and do a selfie, as I'm apt to do. And on three, I want everybody to cheer and put their hands in the air like this is the most amazing experience you've ever had in your life. So, all right, you ready? One, two, three. Awesome. You guys are awesome. Thanks for, uh, thanks for putting up with me. So, okay. Um, how many people here did Modern Apprenticeship 1 uh, anytime in the last year? Awesome. So, this is basically my life in about three years. Uh, I come from a farm town of about 7,500 people. There's 2.3, 2.5% unemployment in the county that I live in. And I, just like everybody else here, you put a Craigslist ad out for somebody with a driver's license, lift 50 pounds, and magically, what do you think I got back? Nothing. <laughs> so in, in the spirit of first principle reasoning, Elon Musk, uh, decision making, uh, I decided to try something different, uh, do something different than the industry has done. And we decided to try the decent human being theory, which was find, if we can't find painters, let's just find humans good ones, we'll bring them into our company and we'll train them in our own way. And with that comes all the things that you guys know about training and culture building and all that. Check, 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 check. Awesome, man. Thanks a lot. So that was part one. I basically showed people uh, in part one how I grew a company from zero to 22 employees in about 20 months using no experienced painters we didn't light anything on fire, we had happy clients, and we made some money. Uh, that was part one. I'm happy to talk with every, everybody about that part uh, when we do that. There's gonna be lots of questions and answers during this because that's what I do. Uh, but this is part two. So the, the theory would go, you've done this decent human being theory, it, it tends to work, 2.3% unemployment, 7,500 people in a farm town, and I can find as many employees as I want. What happens when you get as many employees as you want? <laughs> Now you got to do something with them. So this is the year of 2019, broke down by week. I show you what experiments I did with my people. I show you what worked, what didn't work, and I tie it to revenue per hour and revenue generation to actually show you in real numbers what happens when you experiment with your humans in your company. So solve the labor crisis. That's what we're working on. But we also want to make a profit, not because we're money hungry, but because a profitable company is a stable company which creates happy clients, a happy family, and a happy owner, and happy employees. And if every, I, I've proven that in my little market, in my little company, we can do this. What I'm interested to find out, if this is applicable to other people and other companies across the nation. So, I have a painting company in Minnesota, Nick Slavic Painting and Restoration. 
formed in 2007, um, left my own family business to start my own. I didn't know it was a recession. I was probably better off because I didn't know what a recession was and that I started a business in it. So uh, I've been operating for 13 years as a residential repaint company. We do fancy restorations, we do that stuff, but really what we are, 70 to 80% of our work, we're a bread and butter repaint company. Somebody owns a house, they want something painted and they call us and we just repaint it. I know most of you guys from Ask a Painter Live every Friday on Facebook. I talk incessantly about business and paint and all this other stuff and I can't believe people take the time to watch it. So thank all of you for that. Uh, after I graduated high school, well, I should back it up too. Uh, at 10 years old, my father pressed me into service of our family business. And I was an indentured servant to him uh, until I was 18. And then I decided to rebel a little bit. I left the family business for a while. Uh, joined the Army in 2000, uh, did I Afghanistan, did Iraq, came back home, used my GI Bill to go to college. This is me one month out of the Army, painting with the old man, already working on the beard. This, is my, uh, this was my old family business, my brother and my father. That's my house that we have just sold behind me, and that is my old 69 Dodge pickup truck right there, too. This was going to be the triumvirate. When I got done with college, I tailored my college education to running a small family trades business. I basically went to my father and said, what can I do to make our three families now successful and, and to prosper the Slavic name in our area? He told me what to do. I went and got an education tied to that. When I got out of college, my father then said, we had a little sit down and uh, it was a very surprising sit down because he told me there was no place for me in the family business. And I left six months later. So, very sad story. Family businesses are awesome, or they're not, and there's not a lot in between. So, uh, I thought you guys would get a kick out of this. I've had a beard for so long, old sweet lips up here. This is my first year of business. Uh, very young looking, this is 13 years ago. Uh, four kids later, and a whole bunch of other business, and I look like this, so, awesome. This is one of the first houses I ever painted. This is a 1880s Victorian sort of monster, uh, you know, stick style house. Um, this is back when I was a single person painter, just to give everybody context from, from where we go to where we, where we are now. Uh, I completely restored this thing by myself. Uh, I didn't have any painters. It was just a lot of time with me listening to podcasts. And this is my family now, wife and four kids. So, Modern Apprenticeship 1, we did 0 to 22 employees in 20 months with no people. Um, this, part 2, picks up after you have this. So, now you have it. Now what are we going to do? I should say this, and, and I mentioned this in the first part too. This isn't solved with software or apps or stumbling across some secret. This is hard. A lot of things have to happen right. A lot of effort has to be put forward. And a lot of things just have to coincide, you know, preparation, hard work, all that stuff, for all this stuff to work. And you have to be consistent. This isn't a one shot, I'm gonna spend 100 hours on it, we're gonna solve it and move on. This is constant effort day in and day out with your decent human beings. So first of all, I wanna make sure we're all on the same page. And I, I do this before every one of these master's classes to make sure that I, I talk heavily about numbers, gross profit, net profit, things like that. And I wanna make sure when I say those things, we're all on the same page. Anybody here the transition curve? Transition curve is a beautiful thing. <laughs> I find a lot of comfort in data. Uh, Zach Kenny, everybody knows Zach Kenny from Instagram here. Zach Kenny, give us an example of a recent problem or tribulation you've had in business. Not necessarily loving, interacting, not having success 
Uh, ah, okay, so we have, we have a situation, I'm sure you guys have never heard of this before. One of your painters doesn't like training another painter, right? So what this does is add data to feelings. That feels bad. It's like, oh, come on, man, why can't you just train somebody? That's a feeling. But what are you actually going through? The transition curve actually shows you when you make a decision or you're going through an issue, what happens in your brain. And think, of, think about a recent decision you'd had to make in business, a problem, you had to fire an employee, something like that. Think about this curve here as we kind of describe it. So Zach Kenny, we have an, uh, an, uh, an apprentice or a craftsperson that doesn't want to train another person. When you took this person on, you were probably, and this is hyperbole, stupid and happy. This is gonna be great. We got this guy who knows everything. He's gonna teach all my other guys everything. That's called uninformed optimism. We don't have any data, but it's gonna be awesome. Think about when we all started our businesses. This is gonna be great. You're thinking about a blue cocktail on a beach and a nice car and all this free time and uninformed optimism. You don't actually have data to match with feelings yet. You start, as you ride the transition curve up here, you start getting data. And then you enter the informed pessimism side, which is I'm smart and it makes me a little sad now. I have data. So after Zach Kenny said, hey, craftsman, train this other person and it didn't work out, you have a piece of data and now you're like, oh, that bums me out. That makes me kind of sad you won't train this other person because that would have been really nice if you did that. So then you start going back down the transition curve, the first bump, and at this point, it's sort of a transition. Either as leaders, we can fix it, we can manage it, or this person self-corrects. Usually it doesn't self-correct. So then, it usually bottoms out somewhere down here. It doesn't always end in a crisis of faith, crisis of meaning. It can kind of, you can have a shallow bottom, uh, if you will. But basically, you have your data and you start trying things. So you say, okay, well maybe it's just the wrong apprentice. Let's get another apprentice in here. Does any of this, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Head nod, yeah, so you get another apprentice. Well, maybe it was just that apprentice. They weren't a learner. You know, they weren't gonna uh, take that stuff in. And that doesn't work. And now you're like, I don't know what to do now. We got one person who won't learn maybe, we got one person who won't train. So you're like, nothing makes sense. What do we even do here? And then at that point, you have a really pivotal point where you either crash and burn, you say, well, screw it. It's just not for me, it's all done. Or you keep trodden through and pretty soon you get more data. You keep experimenting. Okay, so now we're gonna counsel this guy. We're gonna talk to him about it. What, uh, a clear deliverable. I, it would be very nice if you taught this person what you were doing so that they could be your helper and these jobs could go more efficiently. And then all of a sudden, maybe something works and you have another piece of data. And then something works again, you have another piece of data. You're starting to become more informed. And this data is pointing towards a conclusion or a decision that you need to make. And that makes you happy. So now when you have enough data where you can make an informed decision, you enter that stage, informed optimism, and then you ride the wave up. Now this can go on eternally. This can go on in two minutes in your head. This can go on over years. What I'm showing you guys is 2018, just get 20 people. I mean, we know how to paint, right? Like we have the infrastructure. I got, I got all these apps that help me run my business. Just go fill it up. We got an empty semi truck. Just go fill it up with humans. We can do this. And then you start to get a bunch of data back and you're like, oh, hey, <laughs> that didn't work out so great. Or we need to make some corrections. And 2019 is the year of, I had enough data to make decisions and we needed to make decisions. The first half of my year was, this isn't working. We need to correct and we need to figure this out. Uh, partway through this, I'm gonna show you guys exactly what I did to get out of this trough. But partway through that, I'm not gonna not be a painter. So I had to try to just push through this stuff. And this is basically 
at 2020 where we are now, and this is the story of that. Industry benchmarks. I talk to painters all over the country. This is not perfect. This isn't the Bible. This isn't everything that you should run your business by, but this is a compilation of a lot of data from a lot of painters across the country about how a typical, I shouldn't say typical, a really good painting company looks like. This is very accurate for eight, nine, 10 plus painters. It is less accurate for one to five painters. The numbers are gonna be off if the owner paints, but we use this as a typical company where we just use a 10 painter company. So assumptions, if your painters work 2,000 hours a year, you would like them to produce $55 of revenue per hour. That means each employee will generate about $110,000 of revenue per year for you. If you have 10 of those, you should be taking in $1.1 million. Material and labor are the thing that I focus on the most. 15% material, 40% labor, and I add in this super controversial thing here, which is field management. There's not many people who put field, yeah, I have a production manager. So I put my field management, my production manager salary in with variable expenses. I tie it to a job. Most of the industry does not do that. They put it on overhead. I tie it to a job because you have two kinds of expenses in a company, a variable. You do not need to buy paint unless you have a job. If you don't have a job, you don't buy the paint, it's variable. You only incur that expense when you have a job. The fixed is your salary or your office or your vehicles. You're gonna pay for those whether you have work or not. So you can make a good argument for field management being a variable or a fixed. Honestly, it still comes out in the end. Uh, as long as you track it accurately and consistently and use it as a mark, doesn't really matter, but I thought I would elaborate on that. So fixed costs overhead, about 20%. And then this is a very high mark, but 20% net profit. So after owners pay, and net profit, that's what we should be looking at for a $1.1 million company. This is a very good company. So in order to make decisions, um, Elon Musk, we've all heard of Elon Musk, he's a big fan of uh, decision-making or a problem-solving process called first principle reasoning. He is known for SpaceX, sending rockets. Uh, when he wanted to do something with a rocket, the people who had the rockets told him it cost $65 million to get this rocket. And he says, that's very expensive. I can't make this work financially. So in order to solve that problem, since he wanted to do something with a rocket, he said, well, what are the parts of a rocket and how much do they cost? It turns out to buy the parts to make a rocket is only 2% of that $65 million. And that's why he did SpaceX. But what he did, he investigates assumptions. Everybody's like, yeah, a rocket is $65 million. Only the government can do it. It's super expensive. You can't do it. He distilled it to fundamental truths. Well, what's aluminum cost? What does this fuel cost? And then you reason up from there. And it turns out if you can just go buy all these parts for 2% of the original cost, make your own rocket. That's first principle reasoning. If you have a problem that seems undefinable, unsolvable, break it down to its minimal parts and then just reason up from there. So again, this is, this is a very much simpler problem uh, than rockets to solve, but I use the same principle. Now, assumptions, whenever we do a scientific test, you wanna control the variables. You test something, you wanna control it. The worst thing you can do with a scientific test is to get no results. A, a good result from a scientific test can sometimes be bad, because if you control the variable or you change something and you got a result, it doesn't matter if it's good or bad, you now eliminated something or added something to your roster of fixing. So, assumptions, I run the simplest business I can possibly do it. We are, 
we have one brush for painting the inside of a house. We have one brush for painting the outside. We have one roller cover. We have one tape. We, you can't make a mistake in this company. We have one wall paint, one exterior paint. We simplify that because we are a training company. We, we, we cannot be complex like Zach Kenny, who's importing paint from the Netherlands and doing all these crazy front doors. We can't do that because none of my people know what they're doing. It's just a, we need to simplify it. Humans drive systems. Systems and processes have been uh, buzzwords for the last two years in our industry. We need systems, we need processes, and I think people put a lot of faith in systems and processes that they're gonna solve a lot of problems for their business. But a system or a process is just an 18-step process to paint a bedroom. If you write that down on a piece of paper and stick it in a drawer, how's your process doing? You need humans to drive these processes. So I spend all my time on the humans that drive the processes because we have simple processes. Also, lower no overhead. We keep it very simple. We have uh, nearly free real estate in rural Minnesota where I'm from. We don't have a big facility. We don't have any unnecessary vans. When we buy vans, we buy $8,000 white minivans and go from there. We don't have Ford Super Duties. We don't have transit vans. Everything is simple. We have no unneeded supplies or materials in the company. Tight SOPs and proven systems. Because I was a one-person painter for all those years, I took that time to basically solve all the coding science issues that I needed to uh, in order to make tight processes. I tested everything, I tried everything, I tried it every way you can do it, and I, I basically found the simplest ways to give exactly what my clients want. And so now we have these very simple, tight, standard operating procedures that we can follow. Sales is not the problem, that's also an assumption. Right now, I heard somebody say first thing in the morning, what are we not worried about? Leads. <laughs> what are we worried about? Labor. If sales is a problem, don't worry about this. This is not an issue. Don't, don't go out there and fire up this recruiting machine if you can't sell enough work. You're production constrained, which means you have more work coming in that you can paint. You, you, want, you want to do this if, if you can't possibly meet the needs of all the people who want something done from you. And also, the interesting data point that I have that, that I've only realized after I had to put a lot of thought into this is in four years in Ask, of Ask a Painter, uh, people send me messages, emails all the time asking me about specific things about their business and we discuss. And what everybody asks is, what does your apprenticeship program look like? They ask about estimates, they ask about other things, but not once in four years has anybody ever asked me, how do you actually train a painter to paint? This doesn't seem to be a problem. It's just a unique data point. So I'm assuming based on this that everybody can teach somebody how to paint a bedroom wall or paint the outside of a house. All right, in a scientific experiment, I give the people in my company two choices. We learn something or we earn money. Those are the two choices. Uh, I'm fine if we don't earn money on everything, but we have to take away a huge lesson in order to make the next informed decision to earn money. And feel free, chime in with questions anytime you guys want. This is not, this is not a no question time, this whole thing. So. Okay, but first, we always have to uh, ask ourselves, are we the problem? And in Modern Apprenticeship Part 1, I spent a lot of time eliminating one of the biggest variables, which is me. So uh, I asked my wife to make a list of the worst things about me, and I tried very hard to work through those things. And uh, most of them had to be from, you know, you, you guys heard the story from my family business. I had a lot of the traits of my father and how he led painters uh, and his company. And so a lot of those traits we just worked on and I was very intentional to not do, so I eliminated myself as a variable. Not perfect, but you wanna, again, limit variables for a good experiment. So this is 2019 for me. I'm gonna explain all this. 
This looks fancy, but basically this is money coming into the company. The yellow, the yellow line going across is the line of over under for profitability. Everything above the line makes money. Everything below the line does not make money. The trend line here is basically profit throughout the year, the general trend lines. You can see we started as an unprofitable company and we, start, and we left as a profitable company. And I'm gonna break down every bump and curve in this over the next little bit. So again, 2018 was the year of massive action. Basically, we wanted to gather data and I'm very impatient for those of you who know me. So instead of hiring somebody and gathering data, we hired 20 people and gathered data. We hired every warm body available and we cut them loose and prayed. Again, we eliminated a lot of variables. I mean, we all, we all have a feeling what this feels like, but we already had a simple company. There's not unneeded complexity in it. Uh, it actually didn't work out that bad. Uh, the company doubled in revenue and employees, but we also had a negative 6.2% net profit, true net profit, after you take out my salary. We did a lot of capital purchasing. We had five new vans, we had five extra crews, but all our standard, uh, standard operating procedures were documented and we trained hard. The reason we didn't light my company on fire and ruin a bunch of houses was because I basically devoted myself to training these people. I was out in the field with them as much as I could be. Uh, we trained other people. There were about five or six people who sort of knew what they were doing and we just capitalized on the knowledge they had. We gave them simple goals. We checked up every day and the accountability and the human to human contact is what allowed this to work for one year. It could not go much farther than this, but it worked for one year. So 2018, I learned. 2019, I have to earn. <laughs> 2019 must be the year of profit. So for two reasons. Number one, you can't keep investing. A negative 6.2% uh, net profit means you took money from yourself and gave it to your business. That is not a great way to go forward. So you can't really string too many of those years together. So for my family's sake, and because I've been a loudmouth on social media preaching about how awesome this decent human being theory is, I sort of had to show people that it's actually gonna produce something. So 2019, I, I came into very trepidatious and very, very nervous, like, can I actually be a good enough leader? Can I train these people well enough? Can I inspire everybody to actually do something good and show a positive number so it's not just a feel-good story, it's actually an incentive for people to go out and try it too. So 2019 had to be the year of the profit, uh, year of profit, and I basically tried everything I could to do that. Here are my human experiments and their results. So problem number one, again, I work in a process where give me a problem and I'll try to fix it. Give me another problem, we'll try to fix it. So I, I couch this whole thing in problems. I felt like we were underproducing by 30 to 40%. The first experiment was I, I queried a lot of familiar faces in this room and I said, what do we do? I need to know what to do with all these people. They're, they're, they're viable painters, they do good jobs, but now we need to ramp this up. I can't take another year to do this. And everybody said, you really need to have these people know their numbers. You have to know what it takes when you give them an hourly budget, what it takes to get a job done. They have to know how long it takes them to paint a bedroom or to scrape the outside of a house. So we implemented something called project plans, which I'll show you in just a second here. The goal is for everybody to know their numbers. So again, I took a segment of the transition curve, 2019 right here, Informed pessimism. I have a lot of data from 2018 and we need to start writing this ship and I don't know what's going on here. This is gonna be a very nervous year going into this. And, and remember, this is January in Minnesota, not necessarily flush with leads either. So all this is going on on the side of that. The outcome was we collected a whole bunch of data, we ramped up accountability, 
we saw a marked rise in production and profitability. And it's mainly for these two documents, more so this one. This is basically our work order. My, I gave it to my people, they ended up calling it a jump sheet because it jumps off a project. All this is, is a way to job cost. We have a project name up here where we send to the people. The painters all track their hours right here for the job and then they record their paint down here. All it is is a way to job cost. And job costing, all you do is track materials and labor. This is just a fancy way that everybody can pull up from Google on their phone and go to a job and get it done. Every company's got a work order, this is mine. This is unique, this is called a project plan. So based on this, my production manager puts in the budget for this one, 4,500 bucks, and it'll spit out an hourly budget. For this one, 58 hours. 58 hours, this is another tab on the bottom here. This is just a simple spreadsheet. They're color-coded so they look fancy. All it is is adding and subtracting. So, project plan. We have a person's name right here. Here's the date, here's the person's name, and they, there's one column where they say, if we have 58 hours, we need to finish it this week here, what am I gonna do with my eight to 10 hours today in order to hit that goal, to put me one day closer to this job being done? They guess what they're gonna do during the day, and then throughout the day when they finish major tasks, they punch in their number right next to it. So we can start tracking, what do you think this is gonna do and what did you actually do? And this does a whole bunch of things. It makes them learn their numbers, but it also creates production rates for me. <laughs> it's all right here. All you have to do is mine this for data and this is everything you wanted to know about uh, your company and how your people perform. Now, when you have so many people training, this is interesting data, but it's not the most useful data. You could not, base all your estimating off a whole bunch of people who have only painted for three months in their production rates. You still need to do some sort of you know, sniff testing on it. And then basically, all this does is add up numbers. They write their actual here, and their goal is, on this exterior of a project, they planned it out over four days, I think we had a half day of rain in here. They planned it out, and they said, here's my plan to get this thing under budget. This one ended up being under budget. Yes? Crew leader, yep. And what happened was, I should mention too, and I went over this really in depth in, in uh, Modern Apprenticeship Part One, which is when I implemented this stuff, I did it all for two to three weeks for every human in my company. Every day, every hour, I created a project plan for them to do that, and then I checked in with them. Again, th it sounds gross, it's a lot of time, it's a lot of effort, but if you want a result, that accountability is everything. That's the way to move the needle. And then, as soon as they got the feel of it, I just handed it off to the crew leaders. Right now, 30% of my company does not comply with filling these out every day. We have to remind them. That's probably not gonna change because it's been over a year. But now we have a baseline. 30% of people need a gentle reminder on Slack every day to please fill out your project plan. And magically, the top eight or nine people in my company have mastered this. <laughs> it's not a coincidence that we never have to remind them. All right. So here's what happens. I introduce project plans because you could see at the start of the year, we had a great, and this is basically tracked by week here, bumps and curves. We had a great start to the year. I'm like, hey, this is gonna be great. All of a sudden, ooh, hey, what happened that week? Like, okay, we righted the ship a little bit. Nick had a little bit of hands on there, but then we had this massive drop. It was like, enough already. That's when we started project plans. You will tell me what you're gonna do to get this job done under budget. Oh, and again, Revenue per hour, which is a form of profitability here. Yellow line, everything under, no bueno. Everything on top, bueno. Problem number two, okay, so 
We got project plans and we saw a huge uptick after that. Good, we have another data point. I'm getting a little bit happier, but we're still not profitable fully. So problem number two, we are still underproducing 30 to 40%. We need to get out there and do more work. So the experiment is, okay, now we got project plans, people are starting to know their numbers, maybe we can incentivize these people to do something. The goal, to increase production and profitability. So you can see the project plans kept us from completely lighting on fire and burning down, but we're still riding this transition curve down here. I don't feel like I've solved this thing. Like, I, this could not be good. That may have been a momentary thing. The outcome of this, I showed people what they wanted to be paid and how much work they would have to produce every year. Most jobs, 40% of every job is labor. If they wanna make 60 grand, just take 60 grand times 0.4 and that'll tell you how much revenue they have to produce a year in order to get that wage. And that's a very eye-opening thing for a lot of people because they think, well, yeah, if I'm just here longer or just get paid more money or I'm gonna ask you for this because I have a mortgage and kids and a car and it's, okay, I'm happy to do that for you. But in return, this is what it's gonna have to look like. So I introduced people to the 40% labor thing and showed them what they'd have to do. Could we do a little profit sharing? Could we do a little, hey, if your job is 5% under, maybe we split it? All this stuff was sort of non-starters. I even, somebody gave me the advice too after looking at some of my people where we were like, maybe, it, maybe money isn't the main driver, which I agree with. Maybe it's, you should set aside money every time you guys are under budget or on budget and then throw the biggest party you've ever had as a culture builder for the company. That didn't do much either. How about cash? How about if you get a job done on budget or under budget, how about you just get some immediate cash? That really didn't do a lot either. People will self-express, yeah, that sounds great. And then it didn't change anything. So you can imagine where we're riding with this transition curve. <laughs> Six months, no results. Uh, PBC is one of my favorite terms, people be crazy. I, I don't understand why I couldn't immediately positively incentivize my people. My people did not respond to positive incentives. Now, I'm open to the idea that I'm a poor leader and I didn't present them well. Maybe at this time, in their stage of apprenticeship, this wasn't interesting to them. Maybe at this stage in their life, they didn't, you know, I'm open to all those things, but it didn't work and we had to move on. We had to do something with this year. So we're starting to ride this transition curve. And as far as I could tell, I couldn't move the needle with positive incentives. So here we are. <laughs> Incentive plans introduced, and we basically bobbed around, and nothing was happening. And I was like, this is, we gotta do something here, guys. Like, I, I, you, could, you could see, this is where the transition curve starts to make sense. We've done production plans, okay, we righted a dumpster fire. But now, we're sort of just like mediocrity. Just kind of back and forth, up and down, whatever. I couldn't, for weeks and weeks and weeks, I could not move the dial on this stuff. So, problem number three. I still feel like, we're underproducing by 30 to 40%. This is the point where a crisis of faith does not seem impossible. <laughs> you know, you start thinking about, I've said a lot of things on the internet about how I really believe in this and I want it to work. And if this doesn't work, I don't, the credibility might not be there. So I'm very curious about what I can do to write uh, to this ship. So nuclear option. We have to do something right now to fix this. It's gotta be big, it's gotta be massive. We called it the reformation. What we did was we introduced the standards. So since my people, as far as I could tell, could not be positively incentivized, I introduced negative incentives. A, ne 
Uh, yeah, I speak in hyperbole. It's not that bad. We call it the Reformation jokingly. It's, it's, we, were, we were pretty harsh, but it was, it was good for them all. They, they understood. So uh, the goal, increase production and profitability. The outcome, this is the most dramatic increase in production and profitability I've ever witnessed in a short period owning a business. These are the standards. I'm going to show you this on the, on the curve too. But if I could not introduce an incentive plan that would work, I had to now produce that's an upper level thing that they can reach for. I have to produce something underneath them that says if you fall below this, you're fired. So we called it the standards, which is do these, you keep your job. Master these, you get a promotion. They all start with the core values of the company. Gain and maintain trust, quality always wins, constant improvement, discipline equals freedom, and produce. And from there, they had to do every single one of these things in order to keep their job. Uh, four times a year, we have quarterly GSR meetings, goal setting and review meetings, where we assign a, a numeric value between one and 10 for how well they've gained and maintained trust within the company and then with our clients. And then we set a goal with them every three months, and then we follow up on that goal three months later after we coach the living daylights out of them. So there's a lot of human to human interaction here. All the while, you must clean the shop, you must clean the vans, you have to keep a clean job site. Our equipment has to be maintained, brushes, sprayers, things like that. Your uniform appearance has to be good. We have very strict uniform standards for anybody who's seen my people. Uh, follow all SOPs, all the standard operating procedures. You must produce $55 of revenue an hour. And I'm gonna show you how we track that. Less than 5% callbacks. Because they could bang out projects. If all of a sudden they say, well good, I'm just gonna get a lot of stuff done. You have to have another check and balance on that. You cannot be getting called back. Yes, sir. Are you paying them to clean the shop, clean the vans, and do all that stuff? Yes. So on the payroll, they're doing that stuff? Yep. So Absolutely. Absolutely. Got it. Yep. And as, as we all know with common sense, if it takes you three hours to clean your van, you have done something horribly wrong for the last three months. <laughs> it, it takes two and a half. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it, and it wasn't, I don't care. I was like, you know what? If you're on the payroll, if it takes you a day and a half to clean your van, guess what your production rate's gonna do? You didn't produce any revenue during that time, so <laughs> good luck with the van. So, a uh, very important thing too, in the spirit of scientific experiments, we wanna eliminate variables, and crews are a variable. What if you got two or three people on a crew? You got one killer and one non-killer. One person's gonna be very disappointed because their production rate's gonna be affected by that. And one person is gonna get uh, artificially lifted by that. And it's gonna make two unhappy people. So what we did was we broke the entire company off into one person crews. And we set them off on their own projects. And first question always is, how do you paint a whole house with one person? We don't. <laughs> There's four sides of a house, four crews. We give one person each side of the house and we say don't go around the other side of the house. We're gonna take our project plan and we're gonna assign a quarter of that revenue to that one side of that house, that one side of that house is your project, and we're gonna judge you on that one side. Did you get it done in the $55 an hour of revenue? Did you get a call back on your side of the house? If all three other sides got called back, don't worry about that, that's on them. Your side's good, moving on. And that's how we get pure data. I could not figure out a way to get pure data from crews, even that we had project plans listed there. We can take two people, we can insert them into a house, and I can tell them, please divide a line down the middle of the house and then just stay on either side and they don't. So then we split everybody up. Aggressive accountability. So every morning I would not let people punch in until they had a project plan for the day. 
They could not do it. They were on site. You can punch in and do your project plan, but you're not working today until you do that. I check in middle of the day to see if, if their project plan is actually being tracked and if they're on budget. And at the end of the day, I make sure their paperwork is good. And if they fell behind, we make a plan for the next day to bring them right. Or if they did way better than normal, then we said, okay, good. Is this a blip? Was the estimate wrong? Was there something I didn't know? If not, good. You're moving ahead of schedule. This also helps with scheduling very much when you can see exactly what's done every day. So, so that, oh yes, of course. How did, they, uh, how did you uh, sort of like show them the $55? That could be arbitrary. Oh, you didn't produce your $55 thing. How did, how did they know that's true? The callbacks I can see, that could be checked, but how do they know they're producing? Yep, so this is, it starts with this. If we got a $4,500 project, uh, what the equation is here is you take out materials. We just assume there's gonna be 15% materials on a job. That leaves you with X. We take that X and divide it by 55. That's how many hours you have to finish the job. Yep. Oh, it's, yeah, and, and this, is, this is a number. Magically, people started paying attention to this budget number during the Reformation. <laughs> Not so much in other times, but they were very interested in how that equation worked during that period, so, yeah. <laughs> Okay, again, one of the reasons this worked is this is one of my SOPs. <coughs> this is probably the most complicated SOP we have. This is how to paint cabinets. This side is what happens in the house. The first step is putting a yard sign in. The last one is load your van up. And everything that happens in between there is a completely enameled set of kitchen cabinets. This side here is what happens to the doors and drawers in our shop. These, uh, we only basically have three or four different processes in our company for winter. We paint walls, we paint trim, we paint cabinets. And there's one of these for each of those. We laminate them with super thick lamination and we send them in the field. Every one of my painters has one of these and a dry erase marker. So they set it in the bedroom they're painting and they basically say step one. And right now we have two production managers. The production managers check in every day and they say, well, since we're painting cabinets, we're, uh, we're through the, with the prep phase and we're getting ready to spray enamel here. And my production manager's first question is, did you put a yard sign in? Yes, moving on to the next one. Did you set floor protection down? And it's, it's a lot of work, but you do that for a month, magically people comply a lot. So if they know they're gonna be asked, did you put a yard sign in? Oh, just put it in. Holly's gonna ask if you put the yard sign in. So yeah. Also, this is my single human production tracker. So for everybody in the company, we basically had, here's your project. Here's what you got done today. We'll sign an amount of revenue to it. And we basically have an individual number. This is still not perfect. It's still a little messy, but it's the closest thing we could get to pure data. And that helped us decide uh, on a daily basis who is actually being profitable. Yes, sir. Uh, it's based on percentage of the project done. Yep, because there's really, at that phase, we hope you're doing a good job, we can check on you and we assume you're doing a good job, we can see it, but it's basically all, how much did you get done today? And we'll sign a number to it. Exactly, and then in the end, remember, don't get a call back, <laughs> so. All right, so here we go. Uh, I apologize for the blue, this says the Reformation. Um, so here we are, we've been up and down, up and down, mediocrity, Oh, hey, we had a good week, what happened? We had a good week, what happened? And finally, you're like, that's it. We're six months into the year. We're halfway through summer. Summer's supposed to be the profitable time. What are we doing? So now we do the Reformation, and this is what happened after the Reformation.
Now, some interesting things happened during the Reformation. As you can imagine, um, when you think about all the people in your companies, some people thrive under accountability and some people don't. You can probably picture people. Some people didn't make it through this process. Fired six painters. I shouldn't say fired. Six painters were no longer with us at this point right here. So, Reformation kicks off, boom, doubled our profitability. We went from a negative profitable to a really nice profitable company. But then, you can see somebody, there was, there was something unquantifiable in there that still was sort of waning. Something was still dragging down the numbers. We could do blips, we could do good little things, but then they all was kind of corrected back to mediocrity. So, what we found out was, I'm sure we all heard of the 80-20 rule. 20% of the people you either employ or work for take up 80% of your time. This is a perfect lesson in that. The outcome. I ended up firing three painters and I had a conscious uncoupling with three other painters. <laughs> who was it? Uh, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, who, who was the... Oh, oh, Gwyneth, yeah, I was, yeah. Gwyneth Paltrow, yeah. Conscious uncoupling, I like that one. Uh, we mutually decided to not stay together. Um, we had the best week of the year after that. We fired six painters. The company was still the same. We had six less painters here, or we had six more painters here, producing a barely profitable company. Less six painters, the most profitable week of my entire life, running a painting business. Morale was up, noticeably. We had no callbacks. We avoided the crash and burn, and it was a perfect example of the 80-20 rule. 20% of our painters were taking up 80% of our time with this stuff. Immediately, my production manager had 80% of her day free from just, I mean, there's three points of accountability every day. Checking in, in the morning to make sure your project plan is done. Checking in at lunchtime to see if you're meeting your goals. Finishing off at the end of the day. If you have to do that for 10 to 20 people, that's, you don't have time for anything else. 80% of her day freed up after those 20% of the people were gone. So, lessons learned. In hindsight, I regret parting ways with two people that I still talk to to this day, and I've expressed my guilt. I could have probably kept them on with super heavy coaching and mentoring, but it would have muddied my experiment. I would have spent 80% of my day coaching two people and not spending time with the rest of the company. I've been very honest with them that I, I hope they come back. I hope they would give me another chance. We left on great terms. They're two of my conscious uncouplers, nobody that I fired. Um, but you could tell that they were crumbling a little bit under the, under the accountability. And because they were in one-person crews, they may have been pushed out of the nest a few months too early. And I think that sort of, that sort of accountability and that pressure did not bode well for their lives. And I'm very regretful about it. But we move on. We know what works. So here we are. We've had the most profitable week or a couple weeks I've ever had as a painter. So now we have data. We're starting to ride this transition curve again. We have avoided the crash and burn, informed optimism. I feel like I have enough data to know what works and what doesn't work. So we're gonna start making a bunch more decisions based on that now. I don't feel like this is a blip. I feel this is genuine. I can feel it, I can see it. It's all working well, let's do it. So the experiment was, let's just go hire a bunch more people. We just got rid of six, let's go get some more now. Fill it back up, but with a new method. I do not like, I abhor the thing where it's like, we've always done it this way. You know, the, the old traditional ways of doing things. I really like trying new things. I do not want to replicate 
what, what um, my father's painting company did. So we're gonna try something new. With the goal of increased production capacity and profit, the outcome, revenue per hour drops predictably. You add three people who don't know what they're doing, your revenue per hour is gonna drop, it's just gonna. GP drops predictably as well, gross profit, but a stable base is laid. We have a way forward. The people who are left in my company now know project plans, they know what budgets are, they know what's expected of them, and now we have some more people in there. We've increased the culture in the business a little bit, and now we have other people to add to it. Here's our new hiring process. This is a sample of some of the painters in my company. Uh, this is me over here, and this is them. They cluster up on kind of the you know, green-blue side there. Um, what I wanted to do was quantify human personality types with data. Um, I've done this with every position in my company, painters, production managers, salespeople. I take a personality test like I'm the perfect painter, production manager, or salesperson, and we use that as a benchmark to bring people in. Um, I've been doing this for almost a year now. What I can say now is that you probably should not eliminate people and candidates based on their personality type for painters. I've had success with every single type of personality type. They just come with different things. Absolutely eliminate people for production manager and salespeople based on personality types. That's been my experience for the last year. So we're gonna find some more decent human beings, but now we're gonna go find some frustrated craftspeople too. Because now I realize training is gonna be a big component going forward. I know how to make decent human beings profitable, but I also need to exit myself from the field because I'm still spending a lot of time technically advising, helping them on site, working with project plans and things like that. So what we're gonna do now is find some other frustrated craftspeople. So this is an ad. You guys have probably seen my ads for painters in Decent Human Being or the uh, uh, Modern Apprenticeship One, which is, you know, I'm looking for decent human beings. If you make the cut, you're my family. That's, those were my painter's ads for years, and it attracted a different kind of human to come into the business. It wasn't the old grumpy craftspeople that you know, we're always uh, used to. So this one, uh, now I know that I need some other experiences in the company. I have a very narrow scope and a very narrow sort of idea of what painting and craft, uh, craft stuff should be. So I wanna bring in other people to kind of broaden our base of knowledge. So are you an experienced painter, fine finisher, craftsperson? Feeling unappreciated in your current company? Are things always chaotic? Schedule always changing, running out of work in the winter, which is a huge thing in Minnesota. I have a winter full of work, tight systems and processes, and a finishing shop that needs your expertise. How about a three-day weekend every week with a full-time paycheck? We do that. If you wanna be part of an industry-leading painting and restoration firm, a place where your skills, hard work, and experience will be appreciated, this is the place for you. We had, we had success with this, but we had more success than just Craigslist ads, but still experienced painters are a fickle bunch, as we know. My success is probably somewhere between 10 and 20% of people who come into the company, but the people who stay are truly those people who they're so frustrated with the union, they're frustrated with a company that lays them off for three months every year. They finally felt they were always searching to be part of this family and this team, and I just happened to stumble across them at that time indeed. Yes, sir. Yes, four tens, yep. So we've had, um, we had an awesome discussion this morning at one of the round tables about it. Um, in Minnesota, obviously we have six months of, of hellish winter, and my thought was people probably won't let us in their house at 7 a.m. in the winter. You know, it's still dark, kids are going off to school. We have a nine month unbroken streak of four day work weeks. 
Turns out everybody will let us into their house at 7 a.m. So yeah, all of my people get Fridays off. Not always Friday. So that's a good point, Zach Kenny. So we have what my people heard when, I, when we instituted the four-day work week. I told them, I will give you four, 40 hours in four days. What they heard is, I get every Friday off. <laughs> you can imagine how that, I mean, people will always skew the transaction in their favor if you give them a chance. <coughs> and they did. We had one graceful mini-reformation to show people that that's not what it means. It means I will, I will get you 40 hours in four days if humanly possible. And we've promised that to them. And really, there's been one week, one week where one crew had to do five eights. And we've had 12 to 13 crews running for the last nine months uh, with an unbroken streak. So my production managers, however they're handling that, are handling it very well and setting expectations. So it's really good. So I took people in my company, I took a subset of some of the people in my company, and we organized them by top performers, middle performers, and low performers. These are their personality types, and these are the, the green dots are the high performers, yellows are low, and then uh, reds are obviously, or yeah, reds are low and yellows are medium. This star is my, my perfect craftsperson. It's, it's not obtainable. I have success with lots of people, but if I have to take the personality test like the perfect craftsperson, when I took it, this is my benchmark right here. And you can see we have green dots all over the map. What I can tell you is that if you're personality testing your people before they come in using a disk profile, and you get people that trend over towards the high D with the red, they're rock stars. They're going to learn easy. I have these two guys right here. One is a, uh, is a chemistry student who just graduated high school. He's now going to college to be a crazy, weird biochemist. He's a genius. He should not be working with me, but he really likes it, and he's going to spend his summers doing it until he gets out of college and gets a real job. The other one is a math teacher in high school who was a, uh, a fellow Army veteran. I knew him from Boy Scouts when I was a kid. He likes spending his summers being outside and being productive. And these two, I handed them a laminated SOP, and three months later they checked in and they had the three, uh, three months of the most profitable deck finishing that I've ever seen. They just picked it up right away, they loved it, they worked together as a team, they beat every budget, and we didn't have to interact with them at all. They were leaders in the company, but they're higher caliber people that normally wouldn't be working with us. And if we can get them, it'll be for a short time. However, there are some people who lie more in this region who will stay with you for a long time. My impression, and there's lots of people in this room who know more about this than me, all my data points point to, you know that feeling like, hey, he's a rock star, he's gonna go start his own company. Yeah, if his personality type is up here, he will, and you shouldn't stop him or partner with him. But a lot of this, most painters fall into these categories down here, supporters, coordinators, things like that. This guy over here is known as Cowboy. Uh, this is typically a salesperson profile. Brian, you can confirm, deny. If you're, if you're looking for a salesperson, you want real yellow. You want a real people person. Josh is one of the only experienced painters I've ever hired that's really stayed with me. We have like three or four now, but they're hard to find. And he came on, he had a great personality type. Every job is 22% under budget, but he'll forget to put a cabinet door on every time. So he's our cowboy. So we, couple of <laughs> so we put him with a guy who's a super, super analytical kind of guy over here. Steven, red-haired Steven, for uh, you guys who follow me on social media, has, has not had a callback in his almost year and a half working with me. 
He has an unbroken streak, my only one who's never got a callback. So what do I do? I take no callback Steven and Cowboy, and they're a dream team. Because Cowboy will plow through, Steven will clean up. Yes, except when you have a company with not a lot of skill, <laughs> you sort of have to, <laughs> can you paint? Yes, teach this other person right now. Don't ruin anything, you know, that's sort of the mantra, so yes. No, we, uh, we actually frequently switch crews up just for, yeah, magically, three months later, it's amazing how somebody improves when they've only had six months of experience painting, and then you kick them off to another crew, and pretty soon you find those personality types, you know. Oh, God, yeah. Yep, so we have carpenters and drywallers now too, and basically, we're just shimmying everybody around. Like, you know, get a little on him, get a little on him, and just keep moving around, yep. Uh, other hands, Brian. Do you have an expectation for apprentices at a certain point, six months, for example, that they should be producing as a certified in order to know Yes. Um, expectation, or do you? Yeah, so Ryan was asking, um, uh, something I get asked a lot, which is, what can you expect of these people? You know, one month, three months, six months, whatever. I have a slide that'll kind of outline my data for that, but basically, what I would really like to do is have somebody be able to paint the walls in a bedroom themselves in one to three months. And then in six months, I would like to work, I would like for them to do our basic standards, uh, our, our wall painting, our, our trim and cabinet painting by themselves, but with like assistance, you know? there's somebody you can call and you can call me and I can technically advise you. And at a year, I want you to have your own crew and teach somebody else. And uh, the data points to, if I can keep somebody a year, they're masters. They're, they're just perfect people. They probably, I mean, you can't replicate 20 years of experience in the painting field, but I feel my one year people, all the people who have the red wing boots and the polo shirts, that's about the best one year you can get out of somebody. Like they're fully autonomous, they can restore windows, they can restore antique furniture, they can restore an old house, spray metal siding, you know, paint walls, spray ceilings, fix ceiling texture. I mean, they're really well-rounded people. So, like I said, I created the perfect craftsperson. This is my little benchmark here. By chance, I had somebody just through ZipRecruiter, a local kid looking for work, came in. I didn't even really intentionally go find him. Candidate Chase. Chase came in and I was like, oh, you don't say, huh? You're real close to my benchmark. I think we'll give you a try. Chase is a rock star. Uh, he's not a high D personality up here that normally you would say doesn't need a lot of training and can work autonomous, but for whatever reason, his motivators, his skills, his personal life is in shape, and he's got a good profile. Within three months, he's basically working autonomous in the company. All things align for that. Yes, sir? A good trainer? Ah, we actually, I can actually show you my trainer. Uh, let's see if it's on here. So I believe, uh, it's cut off down here, but I believe the head of my apprenticeship is uh, a young lady who's been working for me for two years. She's one of my most senior people. <laughs> she is the head of apprenticeship program. She teaches everybody. She came to me during one of her quarterly review meetings and self-expressed that she wanted to be the trainer of the company. and. She's been doing it ever since. And that is her profile, I believe, right here. I believe that that's not the perfect thing for a trainer. You could probably get other people here, but when you align motivators and skills and the personality and her home life is very good, there's no chaos in her personal life, perfect. All the things align to make a great, stable person who loves to foster other humans. 
Was there anybody else? Yes. That was the Reformation. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, day one of the Reformation, everybody's by yourself, and I'm tracking you. <laughs> so. so this is candidate Chase. Just by chance, Chase applied, and he got real close. And Chase is a good data point. We have more months now. I think when I made this, Chase was in his first month, and we were like, oh, we're going to follow Chase. And now Chase has a couple months, and he's doing beautiful work. He's, everybody wants Chase on their crew now, and he's just an awesome young guy. This is Chase's um, competencies. So when you look at the perfect craftsperson, and again, this is hyperbole, there's no perfect craftsperson, you're gonna get a lot of this stuff. Um, what Chase, things at the top here are superpowers, what they're good at. So I always look at like the top three and the bottom three. The top three are teamwork, continuous learning, customer service. Pretty good start, right, for a painter? His bottom five down here, creativity and innovation, presenting, Futuristic thinking, decision-making, and flexibility. Are these necessarily bad? No. If you want people out there who are going to run your SOPs to a T, take care of clients, work with other people, and be decent human beings, you don't need them to have a high presenting skill or futuristic thinking. You need them to follow your SOP and deliver what you told to the client. So for me, when I see this, yes, they're on the bottom, and those are underdeveloped skills in Chase. I see them as net positives. I don't want that. I don't want a whole bunch of extra stuff like that in there. So the outcome. My goal is to hire three. I hired two. We used our new onboarding method, which were very, before we always just took them in. We got them into our apps. I gave them a little safety training. We kicked them off to our crew. Now we spend two or three hours in a morning, my entire leadership team with this person, and we follow the steps to get the person into our company and just sort of inculcate them into our culture too. Uh, we're a little more intentional about it. Also at the same time, Tina, my craftsperson self-expressed that she wanted to now be the trainer of the company. She's the head of my apprenticeship program. And when we did this, I'm gonna update you guys on a little more information here, but I asked Tina, now I'm impatient. You can probably see that, you know, I like doing a lot of things at once to gather data. I asked Tina, how many people do you think you could train at once? And that's what we're doing right now. So you can obviously see we had the best week of the year, less six painters, we hired two, and there's a, reciprocal drop in revenue generation and profitability. You would expect that. So as of November 2019, uh, I hired another accidental person. Again, when somebody just happens upon my company and, and when I'm not looking for people, if they fit the profile, we'll take them. We have a new onboarding method, which I told you about. We have trainer Tina now. We also did a really interesting thing here, which is I didn't see my, the, the one leadership question I had about 2019 was, I wonder if this would have worked better if I could change something about my leadership ability. And I think I was too negative. That's the feedback I got when I was doing quarterly goal setting and review meetings. They're like, Nick, all you're doing is focusing on the things that are going wrong. The only time you talk to us is when there's a problem on a job site or we're behind budget. And I thought, you know what? That's how I was treated as a young person. But that's a very horrible way to treat these people. It's not fair. It took me 11 years before my father said, good job. That's, was, that's kind of that Passover trait, you know, from I was giving to my people. That's not good, and it's not fair. I thought, you know, well, it worked for me, it should probably work for you, and it doesn't. So my production manager at that time said, what would happen if you were just super happy for a month? Just don't say anything negative. Just everything is good job. I mean, don't, if something goes wrong, don't tell them you killed it, but just be happy, just positive, reinforce. 
and that's where that blip came from, right there. So the November experiment was Happy Nick. Also, this is probably poor leadership, you guys can judge me or not, but if I'm going to be happy all the time, I'm gonna ask for something in return, which is I'm lowering your budgets by 18%, and I'm not gonna tell you. <laughs> So we went from the 55, <laughs> Brian's got his head in his hands. <laughs> so what we did, we have a $55 an hour revenue per hour budget. I moved it to 60 and didn't tell anybody because the equation isn't on the thing. Um, it's only 18% different. Also, what I did too, because I wanted to be fair, I didn't want to be you know, an evil dictator, I, I segmented out 50% 50, 50 more time in my calendar to actually be in the field with people because there was a noticeable uptick in uh, morale when I was in the field with people, and I went into depth of, uh, in this in the Modern Apprenticeship One, which is the feedback I got from some of my young people is, Nick, none of us set out to be painters. You inspired us to come in here. It'd be nice to see you once in a while. Thought, that's good feedback, we'll do that more. And to this day, right now, we have about 26 people, give or take. Three mornings a week, I spend in the field with my people, technically advising, and just helping them with projects. So we had another unintentional hire here, and we basically, we went back to cruise at this point because it was stressful on my people. I, I won't lie to you and say that this reformation, I know we can do it, I don't know for how long we could have done that. That was a blip where that three month period in my company, people would run from the van to the house. That's not necessarily sustainable, <laughs> you know what I mean? But basically remember the reformation was do this or you're fired. And we got a lot of production, but I like to go to the extremes to gather data and make decisions. If we did a mediocre experiment that got mediocre results, what do you kind of do? I took it as far as you can take it, and we found out where that breaking point was, and I backed it all off. Because I do know morale suffers, and they, these people suffer in silence too. We're a bunch of passive aggressive Midwesterners. So these people are not people that are gonna come to you and say, hey, that was kind of stressful on us. I'd really like to be on a crew and I'd like to train more with Tina and like you to be around. They won't say anything, they'll just leave you. So I, I sensed it. And then in those personal goal setting and review meetings where I sit down with everybody in the company, there's a lot of tears, there's a lot of stuff going on, there's a lot of emotions in this and I realize this massive action, this sort of like no excuses, human experiment thing, not everybody is excited by that stuff. I am. So now we back it off a little bit. Let's crew up again. Let's get morale up. Yes, sir. Yes. They were, they were all fairly new people that, I think the through line was, there wasn't one particular thing that, that you know, was the through line through all of them, but they were some of the people who had been with the company the least. And again, we did coach them, we did do some things, but it was too early to, to get them out. I mean, really, it, we should have kept them crewed up, but then that would have muddied my experiment. So I had a crisis of faith about what to do with that stuff. Uh, yep, so th three people, we're basically like, oh, if you're gonna actually hold us accountable, we're not interested in this. I'm like, all right, that's good to know. We can't work together. The rest of the people were like, God, you're right on the edge, and they sort of made the decision to go, and I think they were maybe waiting for me to say, here's how we make it work, and I think I, think I, I failed as a leader with that stuff. So I, I had uh, very long nights thinking about that stuff, but I wanted, I wanted the data to know if we could do this. So 
there's basically 2019, the outcome. Standards were enforced, single person crews, four day work weeks, new hiring process. For this period of the reformation, my company did a 27% true net profit. This is after I get paid. Um, when we talk about net profit, this is after the owner gets paid. A lot of people roll in their, their owner's salary and you hear a lot of numbers like, oh, it was 28%, it was 35% net profit. That's almost unheard of. If you hear that, you should be asking some questions. This is after I paid myself. I'm a W-2 employee in my own company. That equaled to about $78,000 of pure profit coming out of this blip right here. So all of this, all the experiments led up to this. This is not good. There's a lot of negative stuff. I was tapping into the line of credit and the credit cards. This made up for all of this in 2018. You can write the ship in a very good way in a very short amount of time with intense effort and accountability. So 2019 summary, lessons learned. Quarter one, I had a 5% net profit. Quarter two, 10%. Quarter three, 27%. Yay, reformation. I ended the year with a 16.62 net profit. Industry standard, somewhere between 15 and 20, probably closer to 15. And that's after we had quarters that weren't all that great at the start. For those of you who track gross profit and all the numbers and those benchmarks before, we finished the year with 12.8% materials, which was under budget for 15, 15 is the benchmark. 41.7% labor, which is over budget uh, for labor, should be 40. And we had 4.1% field management. My production manager, I budget about 5%. We only, her salary was only 4.1% of revenue. The total GP on the year, the goal is to get a 40% GP. We did 41.4. Accountability is everything. This was not an app that did this. This wasn't a process. It was humans interacting with these processes every day, multiple times a day, holding people accountable. PVC, people be crazy. None of this would have happened if you guys would respond to profit sharing. We didn't have to do this, but since we're here, we're gonna do it. Positive versus negative incentives. The reason I tried the positive incentives, because a very good painting friend of mine from California said, I did that and we got 30% increase in production. And all my problems dealt with 30% less production. So I thought this is gonna be perfect. I'm gonna do exactly what he did and I'm gonna see that result and it did nothing. Be open to the fact that your people are unique and you're gonna to have to come up with a solution for that. There's no perfect process or system. Buzzwords, processes, systems. Uh, a friend of mine owns a painting company, created his own custom software. It's magical. If he gave it to me, it would be a complete failure. It's the humans who run it. It's all the humans. Lots of things need to go right. This is not, we didn't stumble across this. This was a year of me giving up a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of hardship, personnel decisions, all sorts of things. This is not easy. Lessons learned. What's the cost of hiring and training a decent human being? So this is the next step. I wanted to quantify. People say, you know, we've got this person in, we're not making any money. This is as close and as pure a data as I can give you. I've never seen this quantified before. This is just from last year. What is the cost of hiring and training a decent human being? Number one, data point. They ask for low wages, typically 12 to $14 an hour. When I hire these people, I ask them, what do you want to get paid? They usually undervalue themselves. I would have paid them more if they, if they left it up to me, so I leave it up to them. They slow down my craftspeople. Yes, we all know this. Zach Kenny, 
you got a craftsperson, doesn't want to train somebody. Yeah, because it slows them down. They can't do their stuff. Job hourly budgets, 55% higher. 55% more hours are used on a job site when you throw somebody who no, knows nothing with somebody who knows something. Labor cost is a percentage of revenue. Remember, we're dealing with this 40% labor. We're trying to hit 40% labor. The best data I can give you is that's gonna increase 15 to 18 points for that. That's not, yeah, it's gross profit numbers. Don't, don't tie this to revenue or other stuff. This is pure, if you're basing your stuff off 40% labor, you will now have about 55 or 58% labor per job. That doesn't mean you lose money. You are still making money, just not as much as you could be. This is not losing money. That's what, that, all my calculations from last year is, if you take people who know something, and you take people who know nothing, the whole company doesn't lose in a massive way if you control those things very tightly. You're watching materials and labor every day. How fast can we create a painter with support? One month. Trainer Tina's on site, Chase is in the bedroom, he's only been painting for a month. He can probably do that bedroom by himself, he's gonna have one question, you know? A painter without support, four to six months. Basically, they're gonna be nervous, but I could kick one of my people out at four to six months and they could probably do one of our projects by themselves. A craftsperson or a crew leader, one year. By one year, I've never had the problem of wondering if somebody's ready or not. By one year, they've always been ready to be a crew leader. 2018, I learned. 2019, I earned. So 2020 is the year of let's go. Now, we have a whole bunch of data and I'm optimistic again. We've rode the transition curve and we're back up again. Now, 2020 goal, double production capacity by May 1st. We did a million dollars last year. My goal is to have the capacity to do two million by May. This is not doubling your business because you're not gonna double your revenue, bringing in 10 more decent human beings. We will double production capacity by May 1st. In November of 2019, I had one client concierge, as I call them, a production manager, and seven apprentices and craftspeople after the Reformation. That's where we were on that graph, down from a high mark. As of February, yesterday, I hired an additional client concierge and production manager in January. We've hired and trained 13 craftspeople, and we now have two drywallers and a carpenter on staff. Quarter two and quarter three of 2020, we now add the estimator and salesperson. That's the last link in this. Right now, my goal as a leader was to have the capacity to do $2 million worth of revenue by May. Technically, we're at that now, so I beat my budget. And then we do estimates. So, yes, sir? What's the like, average job size in your company? $3,700. Industry average. If you look at residential repaint companies, yep. Smaller average job size allows you to train people faster. Bread and butter painting allows that, yep. Okay. And that goes with it. Well, don't, don't anybody ever listen to Zach Kenny and, to, and base your company off that, dude. You're doing two-week front doors. Like, nobody gets that. We all wish we could do what you did. So, <laughs> yeah, for those of you who don't follow Zach, ZK Painting on Instagram, and you'll know what we're talking about. So, uh, and this is 2020 so far. This is, uh, these are the weeks, one, two, three, four, five, six. What are we in week eight now, give or take? Uh, these are the weeks I have complete data for, material and labor. And again, we started off with about a... 20% GP here, we had a good week, maybe one job didn't go right, and now the last couple weeks, uh, this is about two to four weeks ago, we've been doing really good with GP. So, yes? No. 
we, we do have people, so I don't, wanna, I don't wanna give people the wrong impression that nobody knows what they're doing. We have about six to eight people who are really, really good. My most senior craftsperson has been painting for three years. The second most is two years, and they're really, really good. So we can't do Zach Kenny work, but I have trainer Tina and her boot camp crew right now uh, applying liquid gold leaf in a theater restoration in downtown Minneapolis, and they're doing masterful work. So they're really good people that I just need to give them more credit and trust them, you know? Yeah. It, another hand, I thought, yes, in back, Josh. Yes. Yep, our, our, our standard, our commodity is paint the walls in a bedroom, in a standard bedroom. And what I want them to do it in is in four to five hours with no callbacks. And as soon as they can do that, technically, I should say this, we don't wait for them to hit it. By the time they hit that, they're basically a semi-autonomous painter. They can do most other things we do with somebody else close by for a clarification. Yes. Yes. I, I put it as a variable expense. I, I want to know what you do, Josh. Do you do variable or do you do fixed? I do fixed. Yeah, almost everybody else does. I, I had somebody, maybe this is good or bad, I, I'm still open to the fact that I need to change it, but uh, somebody made a very compelling argument to me eight months ago that you should do it there, and I've left it there ever since. But I say that knowing everybody, including people I look up to, don't do that. So, <laughs> yeah. No, and see, that's the argument for having it as a fixed cost because I have two production managers, Holly and Justin, and you cannot exactly track every keystroke on an email and every phone call and track it to a job, but I do, my argument is if they weren't there, none of these jobs would happen. So it's, if I didn't have work, you know, yes. I, I, the, the, the argument for having it as a fixed expense is probably stronger than variable, but I feel it's more tied to the job than it's not, at least in my company, and I don't, it doesn't change the way I make decisions right now, so I leave it. Was there anybody, all the way in back. Just me. Yep, yep. Hence, uh, hence the need for this. This is all set. I got my benchmark ready to go. We got a job description lined up. I just need to spend the first six months of this year make sure my people have the training and then I can spend the time to train an estimator because I'm under no auspicion that I'm gonna be able to be in the field with my painters and train an estimator. So that's, once everybody's going for the first half of summer, I spend it with them. So yes, sir. You said I think in one year you could get somebody to sort of a craftsman. Yes. Craftsman to me is like eggshell for paint companies. It's not a scientific term. It's I feel that everything that my clients ask us to do can be done by those people and maybe a little more. Tina has only been with me for two years. Not only is she a masterful trainer that is probably doing world-class training, she can also do fine artwork. And she's up in a, she's up in a uh, theater restoration right now doing this crazy liquid gold leaf stuff. So it's one of those things where there's a whole bunch of untapped sort of stuff in there and we just need to master the stuff that makes money. We don't do theater restorations every day. So it's more like. 
No. Um, no videos, no classroom, no anything. You get in the field and you work with somebody who knows what they're doing and you just do that forever. And part of, part of the reason I wanted to bring in experienced craftspeople was because my most senior person is three years, my next one is two. We need some diversity and experience. So, yeah. Anybody else? I feel like the classes are out, so. Oh yes, go ahead. Did you have harm? No, okay. Anybody else? Awesome, thank you guys very much. Paint Ed podcasts are produced by the Painting Contractors Association and is made possible by members and industry partners. To find out more about upcoming education opportunities or for more information about joining PCA, visit PCAPaintEd.org.